This episode of The Yarn is sponsored by Heinemann in their professional book, A Teacher's Guide to Reading Conferences. Colby talked with author Jennifer Saravallo about the book. My book's about conferring, uh, which is such an important topic for me. It's the first book I ever wrote was about conferring, and it's really exciting to be able to return to the topic. Um, and I think it's such an important thing for teachers to feel good at and uh, such an important practice to make sure we make time for every day in the classroom, um, conferring in reading, conferring in writing, conferring in math, um, this idea of a one-on-one conversation with students to really get to know them better, to follow their interests and acknowledge their strengths and nudge them along with next steps. Connecting with students about their learning is one of the most meaningful things a teacher can do. A Teacher's Guide to Reading Conferences will show you how to make that time even more powerful. Visit Heinemann.com to learn more and order a copy. The Watsons go to Birmingham, 1963. I've heard that it's turning 25 years old soon. Yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of shocking. A quarter of a century. Where did it all go? Welcome to The Yarn, a school library journal production. I'm Colby Sharp. Today's episode features author Christopher Paul Curtis. I called Mr. Curtis a few weeks ago to talk about his beloved book, The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. The Watsons is turning 25 years old. We talked about what it was like beginning a writing career from a Michigan manufacturing plant. The three people that make him laugh out loud And I get his thoughts on my favorite paragraph from the Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. I've seen lots of interviews with you, and uh, as someone who's from Michigan, just the thought of you starting your writing career in a factory, uh, can you just talk a little bit about that? I just, I, I never tire of hearing you how you decided to become a writer and how that worked. Uh, I, I really, not I decided. It's just like it was a, a, a life ring that was thrown to me. Um, I worked in the factory in Flint uh, right out of high school. I went in. It caused my parents to do a great big fight with my mother correctly. The reason that I'd start buying things and then I'd be locked up in the factory for the rest of my life. And I was in there, and I can remember when, when I hired in, I told somebody, if I'm here after two years, take a uh, door and smash it in me. And it. Something's wrong. I've lost my mind. Well, 13 years later, I finally was able to, uh, it finally got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore, and I quit. And coming from Flint, now where are you from? Jackson, Jackson County. Okay. Well, you know the the whole kind of the atmosphere of an auto town. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you leave that job, it's like you fall off the earth. People from the factory would quit, and they'd never be heard from again. So it was a uh, very frightening thing, but I, I just couldn't take it anymore. I think the thing that finally made me realize, two things really, that I had to get out. I used to hang doors, uh, put doors on the cars, on the, on the big Buicks. And uh, one night I woke up. I know I was awake. I'm in bed. I woke up. I looked in the corner of my room, and the door hanging fixture was hanging there for me, waiting for me. And I thought, okay, I got to do it. And then the the thing that really made me say, you know, this is it. Um, one of the things that when you put the door on, there's a metal plug at the front of it 
where they run all the wires through okay. uh, our windows and everything in there. So we had to take a, a hammer and hit this little disc uh, that was cut into the steel and it would pop out, it's supposed to pop out. Some of the time it did, some of the time it didn't. They gave you a little wrench that you're supposed to wiggle. But of course, we're working as fast as we can and trying to get as much done as we can. Who needs the wrench? So I reached up through uh, the back of the door and I started wiggling and I it popped and it hit my wrist right across here. And I could see every bone in my arm. And I, I just stood there looking at it like this. And then uh, I don't know how long it was, but then all of a sudden it just gushed blood. And somebody grabbed me and took me down to the hospital. And I said, you know what? You got to do something else. You, you, you can't wait until everything's perfect. You have to do it now. You have to make a move. So I quit and I uh, took a series of uh, menial jobs. Um, I worked for Manpower. I worked as a census taker. I mowed lawns. I was a maintenance man, all kinds of different things, uh, anything to, to make some money. Um, while I was in the factory, uh, my friend and I would double up, which meant we were supposed to do every other door, hang every other door, but we'd do 30 in a row, which gave you a 30 minute break out of every hour. And I had discovered that if I sat, first I started reading, and then I discovered if I sat and started writing, it made the time fly by when I was in the factory. It felt like, uh, you know, I'd sit down and I'd start writing and then my partner would say, you're up. And I'd look and yep, 30 minutes had gone by. So I uh, once I had stopped that and was doing these uh, other jobs, I uh, had an opportunity to take a year off work to uh, and I, I did it and went to the library every day to write. And that's where I started writing the Watson's Golden Pearl again. So it wasn't uh, like I said, it wasn't the case of. Um, some master plan. Uh, it was just I, I was so desperate. I uh, I needed something. I knew I couldn't uh, keep hanging on like this, so I had to do something. So I took the shot and uh, wrote the Watsons Go to Birmingham. Did you did you feel desperate when you were writing it? Like when you were in the library each day, were you worried like I have to do this in order to keep writing? Like what was that like that year? Like no, no, I, I never. Writing was has always and is always such a calming has an a calming effect on me. Um, I, I I go to uh, uh, I used to write in the library. Then I went to the university library, and I started going to coffee shops around here. Uh, uh, in Canada, there's uh, a chain called Tim Hortons, and they're open 24 hours. And so, you know, I wake up sometime at three o'clock in the morning, and I'd go and I sit in Tim Hortons. And I write and and people kind of think I've lost my mind because <laughs> writing and I'm laughing or I start crying, you know, and it's just I'm really into the writing and it's I always feel much better after I've done it. Uh, so what is your process? Do you have do you begin with the end in mind? Do you just start writing and go like what was it like? What was the process of writing the Watsons go to Birmingham? Well, was the Watsons go to Birmingham. It was my first book. It was really only the second thing I'd written. I'd written a short story once uh, and entered it in Metro Times, uh, the uh, weekly newspaper from Detroit, and it, it won a prize. And so that kind of um, made me want to do more. Um, I uh, What I do is I was doing a lot of feeling out at first because I'd never done it before. And I'd sit and I'd read magazines or uh, the writer, um, Writer's Digest, um, 
was the other one? There was one other one that I, I, I read religiously. I'd go back and look at past issues when I, when I got tired of writing. I knew I had to stay in the library to write because uh, otherwise I'd go out and do something else. And I wanted to be focused on this. So uh, the times that I couldn't, I felt like nothing was coming writing. I would just sit and I'd read uh, books about writing. And um, so I, I was, you know, I'd always learn to outline when I write, you know, outline your story, that way you know where it's going. Um, I just ha had this idea of writing about a family trip, uh, this family going from Flint, Michigan, all the way down to uh, uh, Florida, to it was called the Watsons go to Florida at this time, all the way to Florida to uh, take a, a, the older semi-juvenile delinquent son to his grandmother's house where he would be uh, raised properly for a while. He'd get the fear of God put into him by his grandmother's sayings. Uh, and this was part of the culture of Flint, really. Flint oh, is kind of an unusual city in that there are so many people from other places that really built Flint up to where it was. Uh, there were whole towns from the south that came up, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, um, Florida. Lots of people would come up to Flint during the 1930s for these jobs, these auto jobs where you made crazy money. So one of the things that they would do during a break is they'd all rush back home. Uh, they'd drive, drive all the way back to wherever it was that they were from. And so I, I imagine this family of a typical uh, Flint family, based largely on my family, uh, and taking a trip back home. My, I didn't have relatives in the South, but uh, I, most of the people that I knew did. So I started out with them. I thought, okay, who am I going to get to narrate this story? And I knew that the older boy, uh, Byron, who ended up being Byron, was uh, probably the going to be the star of the book, I thought. And so I had him narrate uh, in the first little bit. And he's such an unreliable narrator that I couldn't use him. And then sitting over there in the corner looking shy was little Kenny Watson. So I thought, okay, Kenny, you're on stage. Hit the road. So uh, I started doing it from Kenny's eyes. And I found out that uh, once I did that, I locked into it. And uh, what my what I would do is I I get up in the morning, I wake up very early, I go to uh, the library at that time, I would sit down and I just wait for Kenny to come to me and tell me what happened. So Kenny's voice would come and I'd write it, and it was very inefficient way to write because I didn't know who Kenny was. So I'm getting this voice and I'm trying to get things. So I've I've decided that what I would have to do is divide my writing into two parts. I uh, do a part where I was being creative, and that's when I'd go to Tim Hortons uh, to write. And then I also had to do a part where I editorialize, where I try to uh, beat it into the shape of a story. And I'd do that when I'd wake up really early, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. And so I would do that. And I realized that I finally had Kenny. I knew who Kenny was when I would sit down and I wouldn't have to sit there and I wouldn't have to read the newspaper, twiddle my thumbs a little, wait for... Uh, Kenny to come to me, he was right there. And he would say, oh yeah, we left off here yesterday. This happened next. And uh, and that's the way it worked. And that's the same thing I did with Bud now, buddy. Uh, you know, it, it worked the first time, so I figured I might as well stick with it. What are you thinking when you're trying to get to know these characters and develop them and, and turn them into Kenny and Bud and Elijah? 
Mighty Miss Malone? Like, what, how do you create these unforgettable characters for, for your readers? This is one of the things I tell young people when they ask me about writing. As a writer, you have to have your radar, your sonar, you have to have everything on all the time. Because the world is so full of memorable people and people, and everybody has a story. Everybody's got an interesting story if it's told right. And uh, so I, I'd listen to people, I you know, people that I knew, I would uh, incorporate them into the story as the character. And then uh, as I went further into it, I'd refine it and uh, get it, finally get it to the point where it was actually the character. And um, I, if they are memorable, I think one of the reasons is because uh, they are grounded in real people, that they are based, most of them are based on people that I knew, my family, myself, you know, other children that I went to school with, teachers, uh, the people that you run into throughout the day. So I found that if I uh, could get to know the narrator, then I could go from there and uh, learn who he or she was and uh, have a good have have a good story and have fun with it and i i can't stress that enough colby i um it i have so much fun when i write it's uh i there are there are three people that i have to be very cautious when i'm around two people actually uh because they make me laugh so hard i almost choke to death uh one is a friend of mine named marvin um who lives in flint the other is my editor, Wendy Lamb's husband, whose name is Paul, and I just say his name in my whole face like <laughs> and the third person who makes me laugh some of the time uh, uncontrollably is me when I'm writing. I'll, some of the time I'll be writing and I'll just die. You know, I'll, I'll write a scene and um, I'm laughing and carrying on. It, but humor is problematic in writing because um, I, to the young people, writing is going over the same thing over and over and over. And one of the problems with humor is uh, th there has to be a surprise. That's when the joke, the punchline, whatever it is, it's a surprise. Humor is going in one direction and making a sudden shift to another direction. And after you've read it seven or eight times, it's not funny anymore. And you say, uh, you know, maybe I, I'll cut that out. But you, you have to uh, have faith in what you've done. And I've learned, um, as I said, I do the editorial process later. I've learned to let what I'm writing, when I'm writing it, I don't care what it is, I, I keep it in. If, uh, for example, in the Watsons, uh, if a UFO came down on the trip to Birmingham and picked the car up and everybody was probed and then put back and wondered what happened, I'd write it out. I wouldn't say, oh no, that's not gonna be in this book. I'd take care of that later. So, um, that's part of the process that I go through. And uh, as I said, it's, I, I have a riot doing it. Are you, are you as funny, funny in real life, life as you as are you on the page? page. <laughs> I, I don't think so. But I'm a very small group that, that thinks this. Uh, fortunately, my kids think I'm funny. Um, I've got a uh, six-year-old son, uh, eight-year-old daughter, and a nine-year-old daughter. And... Well, I should say half the family thinks I am funny. Uh, my wife and my older daughter, eh, they're not really impressed, but my uh, uh, eight-year-old and six-year-old, they, they think I'm hilarious. So, And I think I'm funny, too, some of the time. 
Yeah. Uh, did you always set out to write for kids? No. As a matter of fact, I didn't consider the Watsons, even after I'd finished it, I knew it was a young narrator. I didn't uh, think of it as a children's book. I thought of it as a book uh, that was narrated by a 10-year-old, but I never thought of this as a book written uh, to children, written for children. Uh, I, I can remember, um, oh, I hope I'm getting this. E.L. Doctorow wrote, uh, was it Billy Bathgate? And it starts out, it's a, a book about a gangster, I think. If it's the book I'm thinking of, but it started out with him as a 10-year-old in the story. And I love the way he uh, structured that. Um, but he, of course, you know, his kid grew up within a couple chapters. And I just found that uh, um, just keeping him at 10 worked. And I, I didn't, as I said, I didn't think of it as a children's book. Uh, I'd send it off once I finished, I'd send it off to uh, two different contests. Uh, one was um, uh, Delacour, Random House, uh, Bantam Double Day Dell, first young adult contemporary fiction contest. And you know, I thought, well, this book's too old for a young adult. And then I sent it and then I got a call from uh, the woman who became my editor. And she said it was too young for a young adult. So it wasn't eligible for the prize. And she said it's more of a middle reader, which was a shock to me. But you know, at this point, my my feeling was, I don't care what you call it, you call it a comic. You publish it, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, what was it like to have so much success so quickly as a published author? Like, you know, Newberry Honor, Credit Scott King from from the very beginning, did you find that that put any pressure on you or was it just icing on the cake? Um, I get through life, Colby, by having really low expectations. <laughs> We're always pleasantly surprised when anything good happens. So yeah, I, uh, I was shocked. Um, and, and also I have a sense of disbelief, almost. It's, it's like um, I know better than to listen to uh, criticism or to let it have an effect on me, uh, criticism that is, that is bad of the book. But I found it's just as bad to take seriously criticism that is good, you know, that says it's a good book. Uh, so I, I really try to, to uh, block that out. And um, uh, once the Watson was done and, you know, it was very well received, uh, I go places and I can remember uh, go to conferences, different conferences, going for the first time. And I remember people asking me, oh, you know, you did this. What are you going to do next? Is this hard? What's going to what's going to happen next? And I you know, had a moment thought about it. I thought, yeah, this could be hard. But then I thought, no, what I have to do is go back to the same place I was before, uh, right in the same frame of main, same frame of mind that I was in before and just go from there. So I consciously when I was writing Buddy, I consciously didn't uh, uh, think about uh, the success. I, I, I kept writing the book for me, which mm -hmm. is what I wrote the Watsons for. I wrote it for me. I was telling a story that I wanted to read and I figured it works and maybe it'll work again. And uh, that's what I did with Bud Not Buddy. You had mentioned earlier that you originally, the Watsons went to Florida. Uh, well, how did you decide to transition it to um, Birmingham? Well, the Watsons go to Florida in 1963. Uh, 
is really pretty much the same as the Watsons go to Birmingham, 1963. Uh, and what, what I had done was I'd written the story and um, I got the family down to Florida and nothing happened. You know, there was, the family was in Florida. Okay, big deal. What <laughs> Then I came up on uh, the Ballad of Birmingham by uh, Dudley Randall, a Detroit poet. And it's, it's about the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. And the minute I heard it, I said, okay, there's your solution. The Watsons need to go to Birmingham, not to Florida. Uh, they need to go somewhere. Uh, and Birmingham was, uh, you know, such an iconic place. <laughs> and um, I sent, you know, instead of going south all the way down on 75, they made a little jog off to the west and went into Birmingham. And I'm glad I did, Colby, because if I hadn't, you wouldn't be interviewing me right now. And I would sitting somewhere wishing I was hanging doors to try to make some money. <laughs> well, I really, I really do appreciate your time. And thank you for writing such an incredible book that 25 years later is just as important and beautiful as ever. I reread it over the weekend, uh, probably the first time I had read it in a decade. And I'd like to end just by reading you uh, the paragraph that sticks in my head the most. Maybe you could kind of share your thoughts on that and then we can wrap it up. There's one good thing about getting in trouble. It seems like you do it in steps. It seems like you don't just end up in trouble, but that you kind of ease yourself into it. It also seems like the worse the trouble is that you get into, the more steps it takes to get there. Sort of like you're getting a bunch of little warnings on the way. Sort of like, if you really wanted to, you could turn around. I remember writing that. Most things I don't remember. I'll, if I do have to go back and read something that I've written, if someone's doing a play on it, or, you know, I want to read it to make sure that I, I can remember. And, you know, there are parts of it I think, wow, I don't remember writing this. But I distinctly remember writing uh, that. And that was written very early. I don't know if uh, that was even part of the book originally, uh, because as, as I tell young people, keep a journal, keep a log, you need to have something that you can write in because you can take ideas out of that later and use them in your stories. Don't throw your stories out that, you know, that haven't turned out the way you wanted them to, because there's probably good things that are in there uh, and that you can use later. And I had written that for something else. And I, it wasn't for fiction. I, I can't remember what it was, but I can remember uh, being in the library writing that. That's one of the few things that I actually do remember. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's funny. It's funny that you uh, brought that one up because obviously it meant something to me that I would remember writing that. Other stuff, some of the time I wonder, I hope I haven't plagiarized this. <laughs> Somebody's going to come and say, wait, I wrote that. I thought, oh, no. But I do remember writing that. Well, it, uh, it's a paragraph that I've been thinking about. It's uh, forced me to relive all of the situations in my life that I've gotten in trouble. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's absolutely the way it works. So. It seems like you get warnings all the way down, you know, as you're going straight down. But uh, it's fun to ignore them some of the time and take that slide, and, and there you end up. And I think that is one of the, the reasons that your writing has resonated with so many so many readers over the years is it, it does feel like truth and it does feel very relatable. And 
uh, still just as magical 25 years later as it was the day the book came out. So Mr. Curtis, Very thank you much. so much for your time and for being a light uh, when we need it the oh. most. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you so much, Colby. Thank Have you. a great day. Thank you to the teachers and people like you who care about literature. I always say we're a team. If I wasn't, if it weren't for people like you, I'd still be on the bench. You know, I wouldn't be uh, in the in the game and playing. And uh, we're all a part of the same team, trying to get these little knuckleheads to read and to enjoy reading. So, thank you to you and all the other teachers out there too. A huge thank you to Christopher Paul Curtis for chatting with me. Mr. Curtis makes me proud to be a Michigander. Thank you to Heinemann Publishing for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to Philip Stead for creating our theme song. Thank you to my co-host, Travis Yonker, for helping me produce this episode. You might not know this, but Travis and I are the biggest NBA fans that don't actually watch any NBA games. Weird, right? I'm Colby Sharp. Thanks for listening.